Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 58. Um, You can probably hear in my voice that my voice is not 100%. I am not 100% uh, physically, getting over the uh, the end of something. Uh, So we're going to hopefully not cough too much through this and um, not distract us from what God has for us in Psalm 58. Today we have an interesting and in some ways a challenging psalm. Psalm 58 is a cry against injustice, and it's classified as an imprecatory psalm. If you're not a Christian, that's kind of a fancy word for a psalm that's classified where God's people pray for the Lord's judgment and vengeance and divine justice on their enemies. The fancy word for that is imprecatory. I think these themes are going to be quite apparent, maybe even shocking to us, as I read through the psalm here in just a minute. And I'll ask you to read along silently. So as, we, as I read through this psalm, I want you to listen, and I think you, you might even be shocked. Some of our modern sensibilities might be a little appalled at some of the language that we're going to hear this morning in Psalm 58. Psalm 58. Do you indeed decree what is right, you gods? Do you judge the children of man uprightly? No. In your hearts you devise wrongs. Your hands deal out violence on earth. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. They have venom like the venom of a serpent, like the deaf adder that stops its ear, so that it does not hear the voice of charmers or of the cunning enchanter. O God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away. When he aims his arrows, let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Before we jump into the specifics of this psalm, I think it would be helpful for us just to ask a few uh, maybe interpretive questions as we kind of walk into this passage of Scripture. I admit, if you had met an unbeliever in your neighborhood and you invited them over to your home for dinner and you were going to read a passage of Scripture at the end of dinner, I would not recommend you choose Psalm 58, admittedly, okay? There are some passages of Scripture that are more difficult than others. There are some passages of Scripture that the modern mind quickly misinterprets. And our minds can do that easily to a psalm like this. In fact, this psalm has caused some such trouble that there was one uh, denomination back in the late 1800s that removed this psalm from requiring their clergy to preach it. We're not doing that, okay? We believe Psalm 58 is God's truth and there's helpful truth for us especially here on a a Sunday where we're going to be looking at and observing the Lord's table together. Does the tone and language in this psalm seem to contradict the instruction of Jesus for God's people to love their enemies? That's one question that we need to ask. In a psalm like this, an example of what Christians are sometimes accused of being, right? I mean, sometimes Christians are accused of being people of hate. The Old Testament, by the way, the New Testament as well, but the Old Testament does instruct God's people to treat their enemies with respectful kindness. 
It's recorded in a passage like this in Proverbs 25:21. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. How do we reconcile that passage, Proverbs 25, with Psalm 58, which doesn't seem to be praying that God would give them bread and water to drink? In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus anchors his instruction to his disciples to love their enemies in the fact that God himself is one who shows kindness to the evil, to the wicked. In Matthew chapter 5, here's the words of Christ. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So then as we look at Psalm 58, would praying an imprecatory psalm like this count then as disobedience to Jesus' commands that I read in, Psalm, in, in Matthew chapter 5 or the Old Testament commands of Proverbs 25? Well, the way we walk forward through understanding a psalm like this and how it fits into the overarching plan of what God has given to us in the Scriptures is we must also remember that as God has commanded us to love our enemies, which is true and remains true, we must also remember there is a day coming when God Almighty will judge all people. That day is coming. Now, maybe we don't like to remember that or think of that, or maybe our world doesn't like to think of that or admit that. But that day is coming. Acts 17 is recorded here in a, in, a, in a sermon. But now God commands all people everywhere to repent. And then he gives the reason why. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Elsewhere, there are places in the scripture that give strong denunciations, even curses, to those who oppose Jesus and the truth of his saving plan. This is why in Matthew 11, there are woes that are given to cities. In the work, Christ is giving woes to these cities that had seen spectacular displays of God's grace to them through Christ, and they rejected. You know, those woes, he was bemoaning upon them a greater judgment upon those cities than even the notorious cities of some of the Old Testament um, heathen in the past. In Galatians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says, Even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. I don't know what comes to mind when you hear the word accursed, but if, if you're thinking biblically, you're going to be thinking Psalm 58 kind of imprecatory type of language is, is, in, is encapsulated in that idea of being accursed. It's not just kind of a shame, shame, but this is deep, heavy, accursed kind of stuff that is going to place somebody under God's judgment. So then moving forward to what the scriptures prophesy about what will happen in the last day of judgment, we hear the angst of martyrs crying out to God for justice. This is all happening in the same scriptures, by the way, right? The Psalm 58 we read is in the same scriptures where you have martyrs in Revelation 6, beginning in verse 9, when it says this, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So they were killed because of their faith in Christ. They cried out with a loud voice, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The Apostle Paul encourages Christians in Thessalonica to endure in the Christian faith by assuring them that God will one day judge all evil, all who have oppressed and opposed the gospel of Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6, it reads, God considers it just, it is appropriate and right, to repay with affliction 
those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. (coughs) So then what are we to do with all of this? How do we reconcile a Jesus who says, come to me, all you, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. With the Jesus described as this, flaming fire inflicting vengeance on all those who do not know him. How do we reconcile those two? Well, friends, I am glad to say that as Christians, we believe in a glorious and great God. A God who is not just a teddy bear, who's not just a warm blanket on a cold night, but a God who is just and right in all that he does. And so as Christians, are we supposed to love our enemies and do good to them and to pray for their repentance and salvation? Yes, we are. So I want to make that abundantly clear as we look at Psalm 58, that all the the, the instruction of Christ remains true at the same time. Should Christians cry out to God with their anguish and heartbreak over the evils and injustices in this world? Yes. Should Christians look forward to the day when God will bring his righteous judgment and overturn all evil? Yes. And so as challenging as Psalm 58 is to our modern sensibilities, even somewhat to our, our kind of ingrained like political correctness, I mean, we all have those, press, those pressures pushing upon us and we all start to be affected by that in various ways. <clears throat> in spite of all that, I'm glad that we do have Psalm 58 because it is a wonderful and glorious comfort to a people who live in a world that where things are not the way they should be. Where there are horrific miscarriages of justice. I should say they are horrific expressions of injustice. And it is a wonderful balm, and especially on this Lord's Supper morning, I think we'll be surprised at how it will prepare our hearts to remember and reflect with fresh adoration on the great saving acts of Christ. So we're going to be brief this morning as we look through this. Um, There's only 11 verses here for us to understand, really kind of looking at this as kind of a meditation to help prepare our hearts to observe the Lord's Supper together. The first truth is in verses 1 through 5, which is simply this, and it's it's so obvious for us as as we live in this world. There is gross evil and horrific injustice in this world. That is a fact. And so what I'm trying to say is this. True Christianity is real. And if you've ever been around Christianity that is just kind of syrupy, sweet, sugary, you know, everything's wonderful, everything's okay, God is great, God is glory, and that's all true, and they just kind of go through this life with a sing-songy, nothing's, nothing's ever wrong, that's not real. Psalm 58 is in our Bibles for a reason, folks, and it's there for us to use. There are gross evil and, and horrific injustices in our world. Look at the opening lines of this psalm. They're rhetorical questions because the answers to them are just so obvious. Do you indeed decry what is right, you gods? There's some debate upon the gods there. It's a little g. It's really mighty ones or silent ones is there in the, in, the, in the original Hebrew. And David is hurling his accusations against the rulers of his day, which it seems that in the series sequence of the Psalms where this is at, Psalm 56, 57, now 58, that it's happening in a time when David is running for his life as a fugitive from Saul, and Saul is using his position and power, with, and he's abusing it. 
Saul is running after David, trying to eliminate David as a potential threat. And David is not a threat. But he's running after David and abusing his power. And he's, he's, it's a gross miscarriage of justice. He's, using, he's weaponizing the army of Israel against David. And he's crying out. David is hurling his accusations against the so-called rulers of his day that could and should have spoken up against these miscarriages of justice. The accusation is that the judgments that they are making are corrupt. Instead of deliberating, as you continue on, instead of deliberating about how to make wise and just decisions, they are deliberating and scheming how to have terrible miscarriages of justice. Instead of stopping violence, they are the ones that are perpetrating violence against the innocent and against the oppressed. So in verses 3 through 5, he explains why they do this. These people are given wholeheartedly to evil. Even if you were to shout at them and try to persuade them to go a different path, they won't hear. He likens them to snakes that, are, that, are, that cannot hear. There's a snake charmer that is skilled in his craft, and they are snakes who reject the charms. They're dead set on going their own way. In Proverbs 1, we're told that wisdom is crying aloud in the streets. These are people who are deaf to those cries. Even when the God-man Jesus was speaking and preaching, he was around people when he was saying, repent and believe, they were deaf to his invitation and they instead carried out their brutal plan of execution. And through world history, we have seen the world full of, this kinds, of these kinds of horrific miscarriages of justice, these perpetrators of evil. Does your life bear the scars from this kind of evil cruelty? I know that this is true for some of us in this room in various ways. Injustices, wrongs, evils. Some of, some of you are still awaiting justice to prevail in your life, in your circumstance. And sadly, world history is full of stories where evil and injustice are still prevailing and the innocent have suffered and they are still waiting. They join the cry of those martyrs we read in Revelation when they say, How long, Sovereign Lord, before you take vengeance upon our blood? How should we respond to these kinds of heartbreaking, cruel expressions of corruption in our world? Psalm 58 gives us one of the ways, and it's this, we must cry out to God. We must cry out to God because, really, here's the second main idea of Psalm 58. God alone is capable of judging evil. He alone is capable of judging evil. Now, I know some of us might hear a sermon like this and look at a psalm like this and say, that's not enough. Let's soldier up. Let's weapon up. Let's go after evil. But hang on. Let's continue to see how God's plan unfolds here. The content of verses 6 through 9 is fierce and harsh against evil. David uses imagery here in these verses when he talks about breaking teeth in their mouth or tearing out fangs of young lions. I mean, these are, these are kind of gruesome word pictures applied to the animal kingdom there. It's as if David is imagining that his enemies are snakes and he wants their fangs broken or lions and he wants their teeth removed so that the lions are rendered harmless, not able to attack and destroy their prey. He wants their evil schemes to vanish. <coughs> He wants their efforts to carry out evil hindered, this idea of shooting arrows that are blunted. He doesn't want any of their plans to see the light of day, the analogy of the snail or the stillbirth. He wants their destruction to be swift, which is what he writes in verse 9. It's really a word picture to show how fast and decisive he wants God's judgment to be upon their plans of evil. It's as if, try to imagine starting a cooking fire in a storm, 
as fast as you are lighting the match to get, get, the, get the, the, the fuel lit is as fast as it gets blown out. I had a, a winter camping experience where that happened. It was blowing all night long. Some of you are wondering, why do you even go winter camping? That was one of the nights where I wondered why I did that too. And we're trying to light a fire and it's blowing. And we used all of our fire starters and we had nothing to show for it. It was futile. This is the analogy that David wants to happen to those that are doing evil. Blow out their plans. Make it futile. All their schemes and efforts. Destroy it. I believe, though, as we read through these verses, that we must understand this important principle to keep in mind. That this cry for judgment on evil is, is not David praying for God to strike people he doesn't like. This is not some sort of personal vendetta that David wants God to enact for him. David is God's anointed. And God is a God of justice and righteousness. There is such a thing as right and wrong. And those things were being turned upside down in the world that David was living in. And David was crying out to God to make it right so that the world would see more of God's glory. Because God is a glorious, he's a God of glory and right righteousness. And so the issues at stake here are God-sized, not David-sized. And it's the same in our hearts. We live in a world and a society that kind of champions the getting back at others, right? It's the stuff of movies and books and stories. But friends... Christians have been wonderfully delivered from that notion because we are able to entrust someone who is much better equipped at overcoming evil than we ever will be, even if we trained our lives to do it. Now, I am very thankful that in our society that we do have agencies that, are, that exist to overcome evil. I am thankful for that. But friends, my hope is not in those government agencies my hope ultimately, our hope ultimately, will be in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are shown here in Psalm 58. By the way, Psalm 58, with its harsh cries against injustice, are another reminder of the reality of God. The problem of evil is a problem. It is a problem. It is a problem for Christians to wrestle with, just as much as anyone else in the world. But if you're not a Christian, I wonder, how do you, how do you wrestle with the issue of evil in the world? In fact, if you're not a Christian, where do you get your sense of justice and injustice at all? Upon what is that grounded? Where do you derive a sense of this is right or this is wrong, this should not happen and it should be this way instead? Upon what do you derive that? Is it just a social construct that is the reality of kind of the evolution of society over the eons? What happens if that starts to drift and change and starts to be redrafted? Upon what then do you fix your sense of justice upon? If we are not accountable to God and his expression of morality as taught in the scriptures and shown in the person of Jesus Christ, then how can we ever tell anyone to stop doing anything? Psalm 58 is a reminder that there is a God. And he reaches into one of the most visceral ways of the apologetics for us because there are things that we know in this world that are wrong. And if we were to try to, just try to describe the reason why, we would struggle with it because there's such a visceral response to it. Children should not be gunned down. There's a visceral response in our souls to that kind of evil. And as Christians, we understand this because we have a God who's revealed himself in the scriptures. He's revealed us to himself in his son. And he's demonstrated that to us in our conscience. He saved us into the light of his truth. And then we are to be ambassadors of his glory, telling more and more about this great and glorious God. As Christians, Christians, we believe right is right and wrong is wrong. Justice and injustice are true things, 
Not because we have made them up ourselves, but because God has revealed them to us in himself. Psalm 58 shows that Christians are not people who simply shrug our shoulders at evil. We act. We cry out to God. We have faith that there is a God who will one day make things right. We have a hope that is much better than some sort of legislation, and I'm not diminishing the importance of it, or some sort of social action, and I'm not diminishing the importance of that. We have something that reaches far beyond that, an eternal God who will one day turn our sorrow into joy. One group of Christians that comes to mind when I read Psalm 58 By the way, there's many to choose from, but one group of Christians that came to mind is the Christians that that were the recipients of the book of Hebrews. The original recipients of the letter to the Hebrews were facing fierce persecution for their faith. They were facing abuses of power and unjust acts of evil in their lives. In Hebrews 10, the end of that chapter, the author actually begs his readers not to throw away their confidence, which is don't throw away your faith. He, I mean, this is, this is how dire things were for these readers. He says in verse 30, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, quote, The Lord will judge his people. Why were they tempted to act in vengeance? And why does the author of Hebrews remind them of, There is a God who says, Vengeance is his. Well, because it tells us in Hebrews 10, here's the description of what they went through. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. And yet it seems like some of these Christians are wondering, is Jesus still worth it? Their property was plundered, They've been publicly shamed and scorned, which meant probably for many of them, their businesses, their livelihoods were shuttered. And they might have been wondering, is Jesus really still worth it? And the the book of Hebrews is written as an eloquent appeal to Christians who are suffering. He is. There's nothing better than Christ. There's nothing better than Christ. Don't cast away your confidence. And in the middle of all that, there is these words of, remember, we have a God who says, vengeance is mine. If the judgment of God against evil disturbs you, let me try to help us understand how good it is that we have a God who is just. And the only reason, reason Christians can be commanded not to be a people of vengeance is because God is the one who will repay. If you speak with anyone who has been through a horrific injustice, if we were to speak with refugees, if we were to speak with those who had been through genocide, I don't think any of our man-made laws would appease the horrors that they faced. But when we start reading through the righteous response of God towards evil, that starts to assuage and comfort our hearts. Either we will attempt to be the carriers of justice ourselves, ultimately, which is vengeance, or we will entrust that to God, who is a God of vengeance and who will right every wrong. By the way, the better of those two choices is trusting in God. And we know this because Jesus proved it fully and finally on the cross. The Apostle Peter described Christ as someone who, did, who was this, who, who entrusted himself, Jesus entrusted himself, who, by the way, was the one who suffered the worst injustices and horrific gross evils of the world that could ever offer, because he truly was the innocent, righteous God-man. And what the Apostle Peter describes Christ as being one who did, who did this, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. 
Christians are not trailblazers in trusting for God's righteous and full final judgment. Jesus is. He walked that path before us. And if the horrors of what Christ experienced can be entrusted to God, then so can ours. Well, what does the author of Hebrews tell them these suffering Christians to do in verses in chapters 10 and 11? Really, what he does there right at the end of chapter 10 is he says this, my righteous one shall live by faith. Friends, I'm not saying that living in a world where Psalm 58 is a reality is easy. It is not. It requires faith. But as, the, as, the, as Hebrews continues on, Hebrews chapter 11, if you're a Christian and you're familiar with this passage, you know that Hebrews 11 is full of, of, of picture after picture of expressions of faith. And at the end of those, that list of all those different expressions of faith, there's kind of this summary statement at the end in chapter 11, beginning in verse 36. And it reads this, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Friends, it has not been God's will for us in this age, in this moment of time, to live like that. But it has been in the will of God for Christians in other ages and other places in the world, even presently, to live through these kinds of horrors. So are we just supposed to settle and be okay with that? No. How are Christians supposed to respond to those types of calamities and injustices? Well, the history books make it sound like the story is over, right? Christians are killed. They're martyred. It seems like evil just triumphs on. But friends, the rest of the story is not written, is not finished yet. And that's what takes us to the conclusion of Psalm 58, verse 10 and 11. This psalm ends in praise because God's triumph over evil is certain. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. And you could, you could insert there these words, of God. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Does this verse bother you, verse 10? I mean, it is a gory picture, right? He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. When we read this, we might think this is some sort of gruesome celebration. It's not. It is not a celebration of gore, but rather a celebration of the full and final salvation of God. We forget that God's salvation, his full and complete triumph over evil, means all evil, all who refuse his forgiveness, who reject the gift of Christ, will be judged and face God's wrath. And that is going to look like something. Christ described it with words of eternal torment. Elsewhere in Revelations, we see it as slaughter of the evil. The prophet Isaiah describes this final day of judgment with similar terms. I'm going to read just four verses out of Isaiah 63, and I want you to notice how the salvation of God is linked to the judgment of God. God's judgment and His redemption are two sides of the same coin. Redemption, the forgiveness of sin, means we've been rescued from something. What have we been rescued from? The wrath of God. Friends, if we want to maybe reappreciate some of the significance of what we have in Christ, maybe it's because we've diminished or we've been too politically correct in our own minds to consider what the judgment of God truly is. Hear these words. 
Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save, says God. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. If you're saying, well, I don't want anything to do with a God like that. Hang on. Just wait. What if someone did a horrible act of injustice upon your loved one? Would you want vengeance? Or would you say, okay, sirrah, sirrah, what will be, will be. What type of love and character would you have if you were just ambivalent to evil? Friends, take comfort that God is not ambivalent to evil. He is not. He will judge it. But friends, also take heart in this. He has entered our domain of evil. He suffered evil himself. This is one of the hallmarks of Christianity. Every other world religion has some sort of structure of ascension and and, and, and accomplishment. But Christianity is unique because we have a God who did not just aloof and away from us demand something. What he did is he entered into our domain and he suffered evil to deliver us from his wrath for evil. Psalm 58 ends with a celebration of God's righteous judgment that will fully and finally and decisively overthrow all evil. And friends, all of God's people should rejoice in that. Not because we are any better. Friends, even David the psalmist, who I think probably wrote Psalm 58, is the one that said that he was, that he was conceived as a sinner. Right? This isn't an issue of difference in, in, in who we are as sinners. We are all sinners worthy of God's judgment. It's a difference of, of magnitude in the sense of we have, by God's grace, been delivered from our sin. We have been delivered from the judgment that is described here in Psalm 58, not because of our actions either, entirely because of God's saving grace. The world scoffs at Christians, but the result is, in the final day, the whole world will realize that there is someone whose Jesus is Lord and every knee will bow. And that's described here in verse 11 of Psalm 58. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Our world mocks at the righteousness right now. It laughs at it. The world thinks we're nuts coming here on a Sunday and giving time and attention to worship and reorder our lives as an expression of our worship of God, of that we truly are the people of God. But there will be a day when mankind will say there surely is a reward for the righteous. And this is where we'll conclude. Let's look to Christ. Do you hope to avoid the full and final judgment of God against sin and evil? If you're not a Christian, I hope that there is in your soul a sense of fear in a sense of trembling to one day face a God of this type of vengeance against evil. Because you know in your soul that you are guilty of evil. You know there's regret. Your conscience is haunted with this burden of guilt that you cannot work off no matter how hard you try. Do you want to be rescued from that terrifying day of judgment? Here's the good news of Christianity. You can be. You can be but only through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The full and final judgment of God that Psalm 58 talks about should remind us also the full and final payment of the gift of Jesus that rescues us from that judgment. 
God wants us to regularly remember the rescue that we have in Christ, which is why God has told the Christian church to observe communion. We're going to be doing that here at the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. The Lord's Supper is a time where we specifically remember and reflect on the great saving acts of God that are accomplished through Christ and that unite us together as a people of God. The rescue we have been given in Christ is beyond comparison. And I wonder if we've just kind of diminished our appreciation for salvation over time because we kind of start to treat God as, well, God's kind of in the business of saving people. So big deal. It's like you don't walk into Home Depot and just start clapping because they sell you home repair stuff. Like, you're amazing. I, don't, I can't believe you guys do this. Because you walk into Home Depot expecting them to sell you home repair goods and home improvement stuff. It's kind of the business they're in. Friends, God is not just in the business. This is who He is. We have a God of love. He is love. You say, well, how do you, come, how do you reconcile that together? How do you reconcile a God who is going to bathe His garments in the blood of those that He enacts vengeance against? Friends, it is His love that makes his fierce wrath so... It's, it's, it's who he is. You cannot have great love if there isn't great hatred and vengeance against that which would threaten what he loves and who he is. And so the rescue we've been given in Christ is beyond comparison. Verse 11 makes a statement about the reward for the righteous. You see that? Surely there is a reward for the righteous. When we get to the end of the psalm, we should be thinking, how do I get that reward? How do I become righteous? Well, that's the gospel. The answer is Christ. You can't work your way to be that righteous. You can't. You can try and try and you'll fail and fail and all you'll do is work more reason to face God's wrath. The answer is Jesus. It's described this way in Philippians chapter 3. Be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, from doing, from behaving, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That is what makes us to be the recipients of the reward of the righteous. Christians, that's why we gathered together today. Because we have been given a righteousness that gives of Christ, that gives us a reward of forgiveness that delivers us from this judgment. And friends, this is why we exist as a church. To tell more and more of this good news. To display God's glory so more and more would, would taste and see of God's goodness and receive Christ's righteousness for themselves so that they have the same reward. So Psalm 58 is, one, a roadmap for how to respond to the horrific injustices in this world. It reassures us that God is a God who will overcome all evil. But it's also a battle cry for us as Christians to pray for the lost around us. To pray for the overthrow of evil. To pray for the advance of the gospel. To pray for Highlands Baptist Church, for faith, to persevere so that we can continue to live out our mission together as a church family. But a question here is, do you have Christ? Do you have this reward of righteousness? If you do, then comfort your heart in knowing that one day every knee will bow to Him and every tongue will confess that He is Lord and you will be one of those that does that with joy. 
And I want to continue to encourage us as a church family to trust and passionately pray for God's righteous judgment to prevail over all the earth. And friends, our King will come. Our King will come. Christians have lived through the ages and have died believing that He will one day come, and we are the same. Will He come in our age, in our day? I don't know. I, I would hope that He will. We anticipate His return. But if He continues to wait, He has called us to live by faith and to show more and more of the goodness and the grace and the righteousness that is found in Christ.